Welcome back, everybody, to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin with my co-host and 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 uh, co-conspirator Mike Sauter. How's it, Mike? Good. Isn't this time of year? I'm sure our guest feels the same way uh, from Merry Old England. But this time of year, May, June, all my kids are grown up. You know, it used to be every school recital, you know, everything. But there's something in the air that even makes me, my youngest graduates from college this weekend, St. Bonaventure University. And that's really the only formal thing, but uh, it must be muscle memory that we just get, we think May. I've heard uh, in 12-step groups, I've heard it's Mother's Day is the biggest day for relapses on the really? calendar here. Yep. I never heard that. Now, is that yes. just an interesting phenomenon? Yeah, I think May, of May. May gets, uh, yep, go ahead. We were supposed to have our May festival, our May Day. We we're actually we're gonna do. We were originally planning on it for May Eve, but it was it was so cold and it was rainy. It was it was horrible. So I postponed it for a week, and we did it just this past weekend on the sixth. Oh, good. It was lovely, which was lovely, and it was. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Martin single-handedly regenerating the festivals. In that's America. right. <laughs> and this oh, time, man. this time I'm leaving the Maypole up permanently. <laughs> Because we have woods, I usually take down a small tree just to make room for the other ones to grow. But this this time I decided we'd leave it up permanently in the pasture. We and have the biggest maypole in England in Nottinghamshire. Nice. Wow. Yeah. How, how tall is it, Alison? Ooh, <clears throat> 20 feet. Yep. Okay. That's I what mine know. was. It's very, very tall. <laughs> mine was there about that tall. I had to cut it down a bit. I didn't I didn't have enough ribbon to add on to our extant ribbons but anyway so here we are you know another thing happened in the last in the last week or no tell me about it my anniversary well my birthday and my anniversary which comes the day after and this there she is totally pertains to what we're going to be talking about St. Bridget yeah and what is uh, for you Michael yeah I see how do you know it's St. Bridget Mike uh, I see the cross that, uh, uh, essentially I saw the cross. Yeah. But she's also holding a bishop's crook. Oh, wow, right, right. Right? So it was kind of moving. You know, you were doing your job, and Elson it, and I right? were struggling to see all the deeds. Uh, I know, sorry about that. Horrible. She's an abbess, I suppose. Yeah, there we go. She was an abbess, but there's also, there's a legend that she was also a bishop. That's least that's that's the scuttlebutt. I'm gonna pass it on. I'm sure people are gonna be interested. Not a lot of people know about this. I'm gonna yell out my window to the college kids walking by and say, "Hey!" But anyway, inside track. I am so happy to finally speak to Allison Milbank in real time, if not in person. And Allison, I'm gonna read off her credits here. And now she's the perfect person to talk to. I mean, I just, and I'll have, I have a story as I always do, but Allison is an Anglican priest and canon theologian of the Suffolk Minster. Is, is that in Nottingham or is it, is it in Suffolk? No, it's in the country about 14 miles. It's a cathedral in a village. Okay. Uh, she's also a professor of theology and literature at the University of Nottingham. And that's like, that's basically what I was before Mary Grove folded. <laughs> <laughs> her most recent book and tell me i think this is right is god in the gothic is, is still mm-hmm. the most recent religion romance and realism in the english literary tradition i mean this is you know this is speaking my language right here and 
it's this is from your note from a couple of years ago and at that time and tell me if it's still true allison was working on a genealogy of divine eminence in anglican natural philosophy and poetry which is why we can safely say allison milbank is my soulmate yeah i was gonna say i mean that's you're, basically you're, what i do right yeah. yeah. In fact, so here's the story. You, you could right? both redefend your dissertations to each other. We should. <laughs> well, that's well, that's you know, speaking of my dissertation and and Allison's work. Uh, a few years ago, I, I asked her to contribute a piece uh, for the Jesus the Imagination about on the Divine Feminine, <laughs> and she. Uh, graciously provided me with an essay called oiling the wheels of the heavenly chariot female priesthood and the divine feminine which i just the title intrigued me and of course she starts with an epigraph from john portage you know a lot of people don't know who john portage was or the philadelphian society or thomas bromley or jane led and it makes me very sad because uh, this was such an important moment in 17th century uh, English religion and literature. And uh, the the Philadelphian society, they were deeply inspired by Jakob Burma. Uh, and, and, they, and they were a, a phenomenon. It was just amazing what happened with, with this group. And when she started, when I opened up her file and she sent me the essay, I, it was the first thing that hit me was John Portage. And I said, okay, I'm in, right? You had me at John Portage. And in fact, we should someday in the future have a show on the Philadelphian Society because absolutely enough, not enough people know about the Philadelphian Society. And I wrote a chapter in my dissertation on Jane Led. Mm. comparing her uh, in my my angle was that jane led is is the, is the saint paul of her community because two of her uh, uh, associates her, her disciples took on names of saint paul's disciples mm. timothy and onesius and, and i was ah that's what they were doing so she was saint paul then which is absolutely a, a pertains to our one of our topics today we'll talk with allison today about uh, about being a woman and being a priest but also about uh the idea of a parish and and that in england right now probably across the uk I imagine is a, a save the parish movement we'll talk a little bit yeah. about that and wow, mike, so cool. mike, mike's and that that speaks exactly to what mike does for a living right yeah, I'm a, uh, Allison, I'm a layman, but I, uh, I'm the head of my local parish, which was five former country parishes. Sometimes bringing those churches to work together, we're giving the few number of remaining priests, you know, the equivalent of nervous breakdown. So the, uh, the bishop uh, twice has asked me to run it, you know, and I'm always trying to, uh, again, this will be, and I've read a lot of your work, this will be, it's a fascinating conversation, because we all agree that the the model of community that's needed to, to rebuild culture, to regenerate, has to be of a certain scale and a certain size, and it has to have some autonomy. This will be fantastic. So, so to begin with, Allison, I wonder if you could describe your biographical journey toward the priesthood. How does that happen? Well, when I was a little girl, um, when there were no female priests, um, I used to play at baptisms and I had a little altar on my linen basket 
Uh-huh. But um, although I wanted to read theology and become a kind of lay minister, my priest said to me, no, they'll make you a doormat. Don't do it. <laughs> so I went off and did other things. <laughs> but, but then when, my, when I gave birth, I suddenly felt I was in quite a working class town at the time where people used to throw things at our window. Wow. Um, we didn't have net curtains and we had books and they didn't like books. So you can imagine how, how kind of alien as an academic you felt. But, but becoming a mother, I suddenly felt really, really close to the other mothers on the ward in the hospital. And I felt this sense of responsibility for all children in the world, which I think parents young parents do suddenly feel you're no longer an individual you're already somehow wanting to represent to intercede to care um, and it was out of breastfeeding my daughter at night and praying um, that I felt a call to priesthood which was was it then possible no it still wasn't possible <laughs> um, but um and, and I don't know that I completely articulated it as that then, but that it was the priestly impulse to, to represent, to wish to care for, um, to intercede, to mediate um, that I felt called to. And it was out of that maternal urging that I finally made it to the priesthood after about four different selection processes, because we kept moving. And every time we moved to America, I had to start from scratch. And then we moved oh. back to England and I had to start again because it was too long from the first. I'm very selected. <laughs> now, it's interesting that you meant you, you connect that your vocation to your motherhood. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, my, our patron here, St. Bridget, mm-hmm. is the, the patron saint of midwives. You never asked me if she was going to be our patron, but I concur. If you just want, well, to actually, she's the patron. Of, like I was of never our consulted. Oh, okay. She's the patron of our house church. That's, I should okay. have qualified. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an easy going patron guy. of my house. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. So. But and that's what what struck me when I read your essay when you said it, and I think I told you before. Uh, and I have read many beautiful essays submitted to Jesus' imagination, but only one brought tears to my eyes, and it was yours. Truly. And it was just that because, you know, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church, and now that was funny. I was thinking about this just yesterday. Um, so I look back when to my childhood and in my youth. I didn't, I, if you would have asked me if my family were liberal or conservative, I couldn't have told you. I had no, it didn't, wasn't, didn't register in those time, those days. I don't know. They're, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think they could answer if I asked them either. And so growing up in the in the Catholic Church at that time, so in the 1970s, in, in uh, I think I left in 1980 <clears throat> for a while, that uh the idea of of a female priesthood was was out there, was percolating in the culture, but I I never got it because it always seemed like you know, the angry feminist version of we can do it too. You know, it wasn't, it didn't seem 
I didn't see what the point was because uh, of uh, how, how how gender couldn't figure into it. And I was disappointed in that uh, the, the way it's usually uh, presented it, it has absolutely turns me off because it's all, it's very political and it's not spiritual at all. Mm -hmm. But when I read Allison's essay here, I finally understood. I finally understood, and I and 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 it wasn't that I had to be convinced. It was it was uh, as though. Uh, these are, were feelings I already had, but I had never been able to articulate it. You know why? Because I'm not a woman. That's why. Uh, but you put it into such a beautiful context that that uh, I. So how does that work out in your life and in your actually profession as a priest? <laughs> um, I, I I mean I think I said in the essay that uh, that there are two dimensions to priesthood there's the the standing of the place of Christ at the altar and there's the representing of the people um the motherhood of the church um and I believe very strongly that the whole church offers the Eucharist and and the priest is is the one through whom they who 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 sort of presides over the whole offering of the church and I suppose that I feel that, that Mother Church, if you like, is particularly imaged by the woman priest, just as the, the, the personhood of Christ is particularly imaged by male priests. Though I represent Christ because I've been baptized and they right. represent Mother Church, you know, but, but obviously visually as a visual icon, that side of it is brought out. And I feel it particularly strongly when I baptize children, because obviously I take them in my arms as I would my own children. I bathe them, I put oil on them, I clothe them, I dry them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, it's about you, as motherly as it gets right there yeah that 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 kind of side of what you're doing comes out very powerfully and I make the most of it because the kind of the Anglican church will baptize anyone who presents themselves because that's our role as the established church and um, anyway Jesus welcomed children so surely we're not going to turn them away uh but it does mean that that to use these enacted visual symbols is quite powerful to tie in with the ordinary experience of the parents. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's how it particularly works itself out. I mean, I would say that people who thought that having women priests would make everything more radical and non-hierarchical and all this kind of thing, Women priests can be just as clerical, just as stuffy, you know, just as power driven yeah. as men. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things I what I've noticed over, over the years. I mean, John has called me a feminist theologian. <laughs> Shout out, John. But uh, one of the things I've noticed over my life is the the kind of trajectory of, of feminism which it seems lately it seems there's a turn which i really like that that is turning toward uh a more feminine feminism whereas what, what you saw for the for the longest time was 
the the gender neutral feminism, trying to neutralize uh, gender, which I think was, you know, I think a lot of the problems we see in the culture right now are direct, directly attributable attributable to to exactly that thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so, yeah, don't tell me, <laughs> don't tell me what we're what we're facing is not uh, this uh, assembly line version of gender, right? Where it's just a matter of replacing parts or retrofitting. Well, what it's we... because I think you're not allowed to value the feminine as such because right. we now live in this kind of, you know, sort of um, gender critical kind of world. It makes it paradoxically difficult to actually own any kind of qualities or virtues or any specificity to masculinity or femininity, which is ironic. But yeah. I grew up in girls' schools, a women's college, and that kind of tradition makes you proud of yeah. feminine community, feminine virtues, even while you know, I was at a, a women's college in Cambridge where we were we were taking on men at their own kind of uh, right you know, intellectual game, but we were very proud to be women, and I think it's that kind of formation that's allowed me because I'm older. Paradoxically, you're right that there was this 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 kind of um, uh, sort of very capitalist form, if you like. It is exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah. There was, when I was in, uh, I think it was like 25, uh, 25 to 30 years ago, I was just taking a master's in theology at my this grad school. And that was, that was the total question, right? If we had, if we had a talk, it was on um, grieving or women priesthood. Like if you want to draw a big audience, uh, <laughs> Kubler-Ross had been out for a while, but those were just happened to be the subjects. But I remember because it seemed so tainted with the issues of power that I didn't really have an entrance point. You know, I knew I wanted to retain something. So I didn't, I don't know if I remember researching, but I remember being drawn to, you know, something that just gucked up the machine a little bit was uh, Teresa of Lisieux feeling she's called to many things, one of which was priesthood. Mm -hmm. You know, so for Catholics, that was just gonna, okay, can we talk about this? The other one was, uh, I think the name was Tina Beatty, you know, but wrote an article on a, a British theologian wrote an article on the priesthood of Mary. And I thought like in offering her son, I thought, okay, we're getting there. The other one was uh, the great, you know, the phenomenal, we should do a show on her, the great anthropologist, Mary Douglas. She, at that time, she had an article in Commonweal Magazine that she was, and this is for some reason, because I've always just been allergic to power, right? And you could smell the power grab in all the discussions, not all of them, Oh, certainly all the discussions. I can't claim to go into any person's heart, but so many of the discussions were just based on power. So Mary Douglas proposed that with her work in cultural anthropology, at least for the time being, she was leaving the male priesthood, but she was looking for female cardinals to say that cardinals not need necessarily be priests. And you can start getting women to kind of shift up. And I thought that was interesting. I'm not trying to take that farther than it needs to go. The last cardinal I think we had in the Catholic church that wasn't a priest was Cardinal Richelieu. So it's not like a great uh, a legacy. So we're not we're not like standing on the shoulder of giants in that regard. But well, uh, uh. we're all in agreement that we're trying to tease some of this stuff apart. And Alice and I concur. Uh, I've written a lot for Michael's journal, and that was just a, it was a great article. The fact that you call yourself a priestess. I'm not trying to box you in with that, but it kind of frees up some of the stuff that I think is so mm -hmm. intrinsically important. Yeah, and before let's before we move on a little bit, let's, let's show the cover of Jesus Imagination. This is the, the artwork is by 
a German uh, uh, digital collage artist, Katrin Wellstein. Now, we had a committee meeting about this, my wife and my oldest daughter and myself, about which picture she, because Katrin sent me quite a few different images, but they all wanted, they said this one. I like it. Because it's got the fetus there. That's that's divine, the divine feminine right there, right? Um, and and that's the part. I mean, that's the that's the mystery, right? It's the central mystery to, of human life and of the of the well, I shouldn't say the central, but it's a mystery of the feminine, right? That this happens, and I and I, and it's it's such a sacred thing. I mean, I have nine children. And one of them is in the house. I hope she comes by because she's she's a big Alison Milbank fan. And I told her I was talking to you today. She said, oh, I was just thinking about that essay yesterday. I said, well, maybe come and say hi. But uh, it's it. And speaking of midwives, I you know, we've had most of our children at home with a midwife. And um, and I think I even caught two of them as they came out, but I don't remember because it's. I can concur that I just don't remember that whole that <laughs> I moment. I think so I did. Like, yeah, but I don't remember because it's such. It's a different place altogether. The only, the only thing place. to compare it to the birth of a child to is death, actually, because mm -hmm. actually in this room where I am, I am right now. My mother died in, in back in November, and it was it was beautiful because we were all there, and it was. And I had never been present while somebody died. I'd been there right afterwards, but it was, it was, in fact, we, uh, as my mother was, we knew she was only had minutes left. My sister said, Mike, we have to pray. So I, what did I grab? I grabbed the book of common prayer, which happened to be right next to me. And we read from the, from the burial service. And it was the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful moments and in, in, in that I've seen. Uh, but I think because um, I mean this is idea of in midwifery, right? Is is guiding people into life, and I think I think there's something uh, in this idea of of the priestess or the feminine priesthood, which is precisely that, and you articulate it so beautifully. Now, here's the thing, though: what do your colleagues think <laughs> about your opinions on this? Well. I, I, I mean, I haven't actually preached on the priesthood, if you're with me. You don't really get an opportunity to preach on the priesthood. Um, I think my colleagues at the university think it's very odd that I'm the only person who's ever been a priest who is an academic in their department who's put reverend by their university handle. Uh -huh. um, and I do that quite deliberately because I do feel that I'm a priest in my academic work and that the midwifery, if you like, is bringing, you know, the whole person to their full human flourishing. And though obviously I'm not allowed to evangelize, I am teaching religion and literature. And as you know, you, you can't um, teach Dante's Commedia without people in some sense kind of performing it without them kind of entering into that imaginative world so I can with kind of integrity 
draw them as far as I can, if you like, um, birth them as much as I can into an understanding of what it is like to lead a life of faith, uh, a, a world in which God is real, which everything is real. <laughs> um, and um, so uh, my colleagues have never told me off for doing that. Um, and being kind of quite overt. I always start the classes by saying, you have to take into account the fact that I'm a Christian and that I'm a priest. So, you know, you can. <laughs> right, now what, so let's go to your other yeah. colleagues. What about the colleagues in the church? What, are the, what do they think about the idea of, you know, could you be at a meeting and say, you know what? I think we should call women priests priestesses. Um, oh, they'd hate it. <laughs> the evangelicals would hate it. Well, they're not very keen on priests anyway, but they would associate it with pagan priestesses. Yeah, right. It was something screwy. Um, and um, Anglo-Catholics are, in terms of kind of gender politics, very liberal indeed these days. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how they would respond. I'd, I'd have to be feeling very brave. <laughs> because it's really not I do remember in the days when I used to go to Anglo-Catholic congresses um, somebody uh. actually saying to me well if they called themselves priestesses I would consider it because obviously uh -huh. there is still the, the Catholic movement in the Church of England is still split right down the middle between people who will not receive um, not just receive women's ministry, but won't be ordained by somebody who is contaminated. Mm. Um, I'm quite relaxed about all that. It doesn't kind of fuss me personally. It doesn't bother mm -hmm. me. Right. Um, but I, I think many of the women priests would feel that I was somehow not, I, I was somehow not making them equal in some way, you know, just the way that some women like to be actors, not actresses. But I'm very proud to say that my women's college, Girton, even though it's now become mixed, um, still has a mistress at the head, not a master. A Whereas there were lots of female masters knocking around Cambridge and Oxford. Yeah, this is a simple political take, but it's just the, the fact that what you're saying, Alison, is seen as in so much common parlance as conservative still drives me nuts. Because to me, again, this, this dynamism between the genders, you know, that is the thing, you know, that's what moves it forward. And the fact that when we, you know, we're constantly reminding people with our friend like Guido Preparata, you know, in an ant heap, there's no male nor female in that sense, right? There's just breeders, workers. And, you know, if, if the so-called progressives, if the so-called uh, people on the right side of history want to turn us into an ant heap. That's fine. But ant heaps, uh, we just had uh, two nukes of bees come yesterday, Mike. You know, it doesn't seem like, uh, yeah. But, um, you know, it's just it's just grates on my nerves that you could be seen, you know, that they think that's like backward. And I just think it's the uh, the poetry is the only forward way to go. And I don't mean to, to uh -huh. ossify that and say like every woman who's called to priesthood need call herself a priestess. And I'm not trying to like come top down on that. But the fact that when we look at the gender and we try and bring in poetry, that's where that's where any progress in the world is going to come from. And the other one just looks like a machine and our terminology is just all screwed up. Well, interesting you mentioned your bees, Mike, because first of all, you're I have to go out and check on mine. I think I have to pull some honey. But just yesterday on Twitter, some people I know 
we're having just this conversation about whether or not the beehive is is a sociological image. And of course it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've written about it all a little bit too much. I get a little obsessed, but uh, but it's a, it's 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 important. And I think, as Allison mentioned, calling keep calling the head of the school the headmistress, the mistress of the school is important. Mm -hmm. I remember back in must been the eighties. Uh, I was there. You ever hear of co-masonry? It's like no. masonry with girls. <laughs> it is. I didn't know. So, I didn't know. It, it was actually. It's. It's kind of. It kind of. A, I think an outgrowth of the Theosophical movement in the late eighteen hundreds. And the funny thing is, even back then, I don't know what they're doing now. They were. They were calling both men and women brother. Yeah. And I remember thinking, isn't that kind of stupid? <laughs> Can't we just say what things really are? Do it. And, and as we said before, um, and I think it, it's, I, I don't know, I, I don't know about you, but I've noticed over the last few months that it seems like the end game of the of feminism is patriarchy, as we've seen more and more uh, former men take become best the best women at the job. You know, whether it was Caitlyn Jenner getting woman of the year after six months on the job, <laughs> just absurd. But the other thing is, you know, nobody wants, when people talk about gender equity, and I don't want to get too off, off track, they're, they're always talking about the power jobs, right? The bankers and politics. They're never, we, we just, our, uh, the garbage collectors just came by. No women. And I've I've seen um, I don't think I've seen one gar female garbage collector in my life, right? We just so had two women put blacktop on our driveway the other day. Uh, two women, yeah. two guys. It was, it was awesome. They were just, they worked yeah, super. And well. I have I have hired women when I had a landscaping yeah. business. I hired women. Um, but you were, but but that's never the conversation, right? The conversation is where where the money and the power are, right? Mm -hmm. Which is disgusting. Which is, you know, those are things Michael and I oppose, which is why I'm really interested in this idea of a kind of, um, you could say reimagining, but I would say reclaiming the feminine in, in the precincts of the church. And I mean, mm -hmm. church broadly, right? Church broadly, yeah. I mean, in the Catholic and Orthodox, as well as the Anglican and other Protestant denominations, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, but I, I would love to see it reclaimed as feminine and not as gender neutral. I mean, I think it also does have implications for um, a hallowing of the laity as well. Um, I mean, in the book for the parish that I wrote with Andrew Davison, I, I had a kind of theology of mission where I see the priesthood of the laity as you know, dealing with babies or engines or computers or garbage um, as the stuff of the earth and showing its link to God and its holiness. And that this, um, one shouldn't have a view, I mean, obviously I am a person with a Catholic view of priesthood, but I hope it's not a clericalist one. And it's one which should help to reveal the priesthood of all believers and the priestly actions of lay people in their ordinary lives. Because one of the problems with feminism is, yes, you want the power, you want to be able to work, and I'm not trying to stop poor women working, but mm -hmm. if you're working at the, you know, you're working and being all powerful, 
um, while employing poor women to look after your children and right. do your your laundry, that does not seem to me a particularly feminist action. Well, yeah. <laughs> to be that. one that, that, that raises everybody and similarly in priesthood, I don't yeah. want this to be at the expense of not honoring flower arrangers or people who make the tea or... Mm -hmm. Right. That yeah. anecdote, Ellison, is so crucial. I just want to highlight that, you know, that the the idea that the the movement is taking place at one level and then you still have the underpaid work. I just want to single that out that, you know, you see it, you see different people, cultural critics bring that up, but it's so damning. And I don't mean, you know, that it damns the whole movement, that there's nothing good from it. But exactly what you said, I wish it raised more questions than it does. People just see that and they look the other way. It's yeah. always been disheartening to me because I don't look at it as an apologetics point to put down all movements for women's liberation or anything. Yeah, but it's a systemic problem. You know, it's a systemic problem. Michael, I cut you off. I'm no, no I, well, that's what Mary Harrington has come to uh, attention recently. She's been talking about that. And I think she's right on the money. In fact, there was a short video she did for unheard maybe 20 minutes long 15 minutes long maybe not even that uh where she was talking about uh contraceptive birth control being the the not only the beginning of transhumanism but you know the, the beginning of commodification of women right so we talked earlier about how it becomes a kind of a capitalist end game and we see that all all over the place now and i showed it to my students and the girls in the class were relieved because I said, what do you guys think? What do you think of this? And they were relieved to hear, to hear it articulated because they I mean, they had, they're, they're living in a world far different from the dating world we lived in. You know, I always tell them, I said, you know, when I was, when I was your age, I just, you know, I didn't expect anything from a woman. I felt I had to earn her. So I'd write poetry or, you know, slay a dragon or whatever, right? And they're like, oh, that's so cute, Professor Martin. <laughs> it's not like that? You mean it's not like that anymore? I said, one quick anecdote on that. And maybe I told it last week and I really apologize if I did, but it was a, a great philosophy professor here. Uh, actually, philosophy and literature, his uh, specialty was like Stendhal and others, but they were talking about the role of jealousy, right? As opposed to envy. Envy, you have to put other people down. Jealousy, you have this beautiful thing and, and you know, this trust you have. So maybe 20 students, a lot of them seemed well-adjusted, but none of them there had an entrance point into this discussion of love and jealousy, except one student, and it broke my heart, said, oh, it's about this video game. I guess I'm jealous of somebody who hasn't learned this video game yet, because they can have the joy of learning it, which I already have, if that makes sense. That was the only entrance point, the only entrance point to that whole world. And I thought, like, what more evidence do we need of the apocalypse? That's right. Take me now, Jesus. Yeah. Right. A love, love was the love of falling into a world called Skyrim or some, you know, video game universe or something. Oh. And uh, I just thought, like, all the wind was taken out of my sails. So <laughs> apocalyptic was that. And the thing is, he said it with so much affect you know he was he was wistful you know that that somebody else could have that joy of falling in love with it, it broke my heart because of the powerful affect almost like tears in his eyes about the joy of this video game it's like we're going to be hearing about blow-up dolls in the same way very soon very soon oh help me 
So anyway, so actually, Allison mentioned you mentioned your book. Uh, was it Saving the Parish? Is that what it's called? Um, the the old book is for the parish. There's a new for one the... coming out called The Once and Future Parish. Oh, I love Maybe that title. Even more unpopular. So so let's talk about the parish. Oh. and why it needs why 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 should it be saved, and and how? No, seriously. I mean, give um, us the whole backstory, Allison. Tell yeah, us. Yeah, like give us the theme. Yeah. Well, you're probably your your audience um, may need to know that in England, where I live, um, by the Norman period, the whole place was divided up into parishes, and this survived the Reformation. And in the Church of England, traditionally, there was a priest to a parish, and the parish and that priest had the cure of souls to be responsible for everybody and everything you might say I would in terms of the nature, the ecological aspect of it um, within that geographical area. Um, over recent years, country churches like the one that, that you described, um, Mike, um, have been gathered together in groups but the Church of England for some years has really kind of given up. Obviously, there's been a period of great decline in people, numbers of people worshipping. Um, but going along at the same time, the Church of England is really, among its hierarchy, um, lost confidence in Anglican practices, Anglican orders, Anglican liturgy, and any sense that these are missional tools. They're now called inherited church. And so at the moment, for example, in the Diocese of Leicester, they're about to make um, what used to be 26 parishes are to become one unit. Huh. There will be four paid people one of whom will be an administrator, um, one of whom will be a clergy person. Um, the other two probably, they hope, probably will be lay people. And how can a parish, which is all about the diversity of the people in that area, being the people of God, being a liturgical community, celebrating the Eucharist together every week, how on earth, that is going to be possible, God only knows. Now, their argument is one of scarcity, but at the same time, the church commissioners are put, have put 176 million pounds into things like resource churches, where you drench a particular church, which you often buy, you often buy something like an old Chinese restaurant or something, um, and you give them eight clergy, four apprentices, several administrators, and they do a Holy Trinity Brompton style kind of soft rock plus a talk. <laughs> and that's where a lot of the money is going, because that they feel is the way forward. Now, they're supposed to have got 89,000 new converts out of this, and they've only got 11,000. So it's not working. Mm -hmm. But that's the way things are going, there is no value being put. They claim they all love the parish, but then where they put their money, 
and the way they talk, they now want there to be an equal number of new worshipping communities as there are parishes, so that people can find the style that suits them, as if, you know, or a brand of cereal in a supermarket. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's the kind of situation in England <laughs> as I speak. Wow. Depressing, right? You know, there's one thing, we, since we all contributed to the Journal on the Divine Feminine, you know, the literature on the underworld, for whatever it's worth, and I think it's worth a whole lot, is uh, you know, one thing we learn about that with, um, uh, you know, when David Bentley Hart was on his novel that had, you know, the Divine Feminine asleep, you know, this is ubiquitous, this type of mythology, is that the, the underworld and the Divine Feminine is inherently local. It's tied, you know, and... This is, uh, you know, I beat a drum on the anxiety epidemic and so forth, but this is so needed in our time, a connection to the real and the local, so that people feel they have a sense of obligation and a connection. So the, you know, at, at just at a time when I think that with the turn of the decline of maybe Faustian culture and, and something new, you know, we're, we're taking our eyes off kind of the old inherited hierarchies and the sky gods, we could be getting connected. And then you have kind of nefarious movements like this that just like muck the whole thing up, right? So it's the, the betrayal of the local is a version right. of the betrayal of the divine feminine. Well, that's one of the things that uh, Peter Morin of the Catholic Worker said, everybody's church is nobody's church, right? And that- uh, Great one, I never heard that. I mean, it's- it, it's been going, maybe what you're seeing there, Allison, is like what we had here in the United States for the longest time, especially in Protestant churches, where uh, they, they, they make it glitzy. They try to make it glitzy thinking the kids will come in, right? And the kids might wander in and wander out right away. There's nothing there to hold them. And this is actually what when we started years ago, remember, Mike? We had the Radical Catholic Reimagination of Everything conference at my farm. Epic conference. It's 27, it was 2017. So it's why yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, but that's what the whole point of that was. And, and actually all, everything I've been doing is how do you, how do you make it that the children will stay, right? Uh, you know, how do you form a community that's, that's, that's not paranoid? Yeah. That, you know, because so so often in in these like Christian homeschool groups or something, there's a real bunker mentality, and it creeps me out. And and how, but how can we we find something that's vital and living and human that that will hold people together? And and I think the idea of the parish, my my, my patron saint in this regard, I am sure. And he's, I have the Bible on my left hand and Robert Herrick on the right. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> because that's the idea right there. It's a mess. I mean, his community, mm -hmm. which he basically, this is a, a cultural study of his parish. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a holy mess, too, because they, there's a little bit of everything. There's a little folk religion. There's, you know, there's a little uh latin paganism there's there's catholicism there's anglicanism there's 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 uh annoying people in the parish that he writes epigrams about there's all kinds of stuff numerically they could save time if they talked about the unannoying people in the parish and, you know and, but then, and, this is another way of saying how delightful it is well in my book uh what book is it uh, in, incarnation of the poetic word i have a chapter on herrick and uh and little Gidding. 
and in the point being you know he you know people people just you know when they try to analyze robert herrick's uh hesperides they say it's really not really an organized work no it it's disorganization is its organization that's the whole yeah. point of it right and and i and i was i was mentioning to mike earlier uh you did a few videos for nottingham on mm -hmm. certain aspects of, of celebrating the Christian year. Mm -hmm. And the one that really stands out in my memory is the one you did with Tom Laughlin on Lamas. Oh, yes. It's beautiful. I, I love Lamas. And I'm a great believer in the, you know, the environmental crisis is for me the big opportunity to reconnect people to where their food comes from and to render this liturgical. I did a whole loaf to feed 150 people and we did offer it at the altar. It would have been better if it had actually come from local corn, but you can't, you know, it was just a, just yes. a beginning. Yes. But I mean, you can do this just as much in towns because everybody depends on the land. It doesn't matter where you live. Um, in my parish, I was a curatin. They have something called Cowslip Sunday, um, which dates from the May practices where people used to walk up from Nottingham to buy cowslips from the local girls. And then the men would go to the pub and the women and children went to church and they had a local hymn based on little local landmarks and dumbles, which are these steep sided oh. clay um, stream cuttings um they had cowslip vestments and while i was there the the vicar um rebirthed the whole thing but according to a kind of ecological principle so that you went up planting cowslips on cowslip sunday um but you know we also you know we did baptisms in the stream and all sorts of ways in which you can connect people back to the local, to the ecological, to understanding how yeah. everything kind of works together. Right. And this thing about, okay, yeah. I was just thinking, and uh, kind of an underappreciated, and I don't think it's every Marian apparition, is that uh, disproportionately these happen at solar noon, right, which is local time. You know, that, again, a connection between the divine feminine and the local, that you're going to look for at Fatima, you're going to look for her at solar noon, yeah. which has nothing to do with the clock. And I find the poetry of that so powerful, too, because everything you're describing, you know, the local, um, Alison, the local, and, um, you know, this is where the regeneration is going to come from. Right. And how often the Virgin appears in a tree or, some, or something like that, right? Yeah, and the importance yeah. of springs and things, yeah. And, and yeah. Now, now I think, Alison, you, you mentioned something that's, I think it's profoundly important. I mean, this is, you know, I kind of organized my life around this principle, is that I think what happened, I think the ecological crisis uh, is intimately related to the church's uh, disenfranchisement from nature mm -hmm. over, the, or, over the course of the Industrial Revolution in particular and the urbanization of the church. Because people, you know, when the church became disconnected from the cosmos, everybody else became disconnected. Everything became disconnected from the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So the only way to, I think, the only way to remedy that is, and I've been writing about this for a long time, is to to reconnect. Is to is and, and not just to. I mean, I think the 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 one thing is that people think 
you know, often accuse me of being a medievalist in some ways, but I think it's really uh, a matter of not going backwards to the medieval era, but going forward and 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 whatever that looks like to to make to to reunite ourselves with the, with the church, the church year and the agricultural year for me. I think I think the um, one avenue of approach I think would be productive for the church. And I'd be curious as to your thoughts, Allison, is that, um, you know, because you're 100% right, Michael, where the church kind of like dropped the ball. On the other hand, right now, the environmental movement, you know, and Paul Kingsnorth was good on this, you know, it's been hijacked by a technocratic approach. Mm -hmm. And I think symbolically, the church could kind of stake its tent on the distinction between Earth Day and Arbor Day, right? My friend Bill Kaufman, a localist writer, a friend of Wendell Berry's, he was, he was, you know, making kind of a belated case for Arbor Day. You know, on Earth Day, you send a fax in triplicate to a UN representative on the issue of global warming. On Arbor Day, you plant a tree, right? <laughs> and, I mean, but there's so much there. There's so much there. And we don't have to run down Earth Day, but we need, in the church, we need to separate our concern for creation from the technocratic approach that runs according to the same mm -hmm. laws as what we were talking with Elson about with gender, Right you know, uh, harnessing everybody to, to the giant machine. And, um, you know, and they're celebrated a couple of days apart, but who, who do you know did anything for like Earth Day that could be, that had poetry to it? You know, it's usually protests and things like that. I, I, threw, Day, soap on a, I, I, I threw soup on a Van Gogh. That's what I okay. did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but think of Vachel Lindsay's uh, poetry on trees and so forth, <laughs> you know, that the church could re-grab the concrete, uh, springs, planting trees, uh, seeds of cowslips going up a hill in procession, you know, and uh, this seems to be, uh, you've been so prophetic in this, Allison, your thoughts on that, you know, those distinctions, are they important to you? Uh, they're very important. And part of the problem with my church at the moment is that their response is to do is to give everybody targets. It's a bit like the law in St. Paul, particularly if you're a little village church where you, you, you know, it, it's very expensive to get ground pumps. They don't always work properly at churches. And, um, and so they're all just feeling anxious about that was what they should be doing is thinking in a much more connected way about local markets. Um, I know that the Archbishop of Granada, the last Archbishop of Granada, uh, Don Javier, um, there were real problems with olive growers in his area and he actually provided cooperative markets so that they could sustain local um, growing of olives and find places where they could sell them for a fair price. Um, you know, I think we need to re-enchant economic relations as well as yeah. mm -hmm. obviously we do things in the Church of England, there are wild churchyard movements and counting the numbers of uh, species you've got in them. Um, some churches, my sister's parish church in Paulsgrove, um, they have church allotments. And you know, mm -hmm. you can grow food together, teach people to cook ordinary food. You can bring it up to the altar. Um, I'm an Anglican Catholic, but I do not like the fact that we just use little bits of wafer for the mm -hmm. Eucharist. I yeah. really would like to get back to a single, delicious, freshly baked loaf. Yeah, 
<laughs> Taste and see how good the Lord is. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> kind of plasticky. Yeah. It, it sounds so kind of obvious, but you know, was it Coptic churches where they used to have an oven in the church, the Bethlehem? Ah, the place of bread, yeah. where you baked the bread and the smell of it would kind of fill the place, you know. I we we need wow, ways to, to really make things much more real, much more physical, much more tied to their origins. And, um, and to highlight again, and it ties into Michael's work, you spoke of so many natural things, Alison, and you also included in the economic you know, and to grab the economic, we have a friend on a lot who is, used to be at the Gregorian, Guido Preparata. I was in Italy with him last fall, but his uh, working at the Vatican, you know, they wanted nothing to do with it. It was perishable currencies, right? When all of a sudden hoarding becomes a problem in the economy, you know, the church could be there with new economic ideas. You know, the church, it's, it's seeded that whole world. I mentioned how my youngest son is graduating, uh, but St. Bonaventure, it's a small Catholic college. You have a theology course that's teaching one anthropology about persons in communion, but the whole school is dominated by the MBA program, which teaches ruthless competitive individualism, right? Yeah. So we have, uh, and I want to say, you know, I'm starting to get pretty animated that, you know, the, the regenerated church of the future, until they can solve that competing anthropologies question, that, mm. you know, that they can countenance that we can be one anthropology competitive. You mentioned scarcity before, Allison. You know, that we can have one anthropology based on scarcity in one aspect of our life and another one just in those times when we enter the church doors. I want to say young people are calling us. They're holding their cards. And they're saying, there's no way I'm coming in until you can resolve this problem. Let's, you know, we need to envision that their bodies can't handle that identity crisis we're offering them. You know, the hope would be so big having been turned into automatons themselves, the hope would be so big at entering the church, they would risk everything. Certainly not less than everything would be, to quote T.S. Mm -hmm. Eliot. But if they come into that, and then we slap them the minute they walk out the church doors to say, now, uh, when you go home to your family, it's dog eat dog, go have a good time. That's, you know, right. I, that's, a, that's a way I'm kind of framing the question of, uh, we either got to do something with this economic question or we're done. And I was so grateful that in addition to trees and cowslips, you brought in the market, you know. Would it, would obviously, it, 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 it's very complex, but you can yes. at least start at the local level to, to, to have just exchanges. Um, and I mean, my husband, John Milbank and Adrian Pabst in their book, The Politics of Virtue, also imagine how we can have virtuous markets. And I know there's somebody at Notre Dame in the business school who is actually trying to apply Catholic social teaching to a business program. You know, so people <laughs> yeah. are, there are people around who are trying to think, how do we scale up from that? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it is complicated. But we I do, do have to put, we do have to put John and Guido together, Mike. You know, because I'll just be honest, I think this guy, Guido Preparati, he's the, he's the greatest economic mind of our generation, the most prophetic on this. We've had him on three or four times. But um, yeah, him in conversation with uh, John and Adrian and yourself, Allison. Yeah. So um, so I wanted to, so this is interesting. I mean, we, 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 I asked a question about, about the parish. We got to economics almost direct right away. That's because cool. it's, I mean, and actually it kind of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop a, an, uh, what do you call it? A trailer. Here comes the trailer for Jesus' Imagination Seven: The Household of Things, which will be out in the fall. And 
that's the whole reason I put that one together for that theme is the household of things. It's the real economy. What is, and this is what we're talking about. It's, it's not GDP. It's, 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 and the it's thing the is. Oikos, the yeah, house, oikos, the oikos. economics. And, yeah. and the parish, in a way, at least archetypally, mm -hmm. is the centerpiece, in a way, of that kind of economy. You know, I was just invited by my bishop this week. You know, I'm currently running the parish in three weeks. I've been invited to run the whole division in our diocese of, uh, oh, because it's called pastoral ministries. But there's not, you know, I hate going up the hierarchy, but I, I, I did think, you know, if you could do something, it includes migrant ministry, it includes the cultural groups. Mm -hmm. But, um, if some of this stuff, if sometimes you hate to go higher, because I, uh, a favorite author of mine, the Stephen Vincent, she said, power weakens as it grows, right? You know, the person at the top of the hierarchy is worried that his secretary is out to get him. You know, when you're low, <laughs> I've always been at the lowest, so I can pick up a hitchhiker, you know, and I have time. <laughs> and so I'm worried, but if I can throw resources towards some of these economic questions, you know, and bring mm -hmm. the economy into the one right brain department left in the diocese, pastoral ministries, you know, it's a goal and I'm willing to die on that hill. And then work at Walmart when I get. Well, yeah, I mean that, and and that's interesting, Mike, because you know, uh, I have repeated criticisms of so-called distributists because you know I'll I'll get into a distributist group and I say, well, does anybody actually buy directly from a farmer or PSA? <laughs> and no, we just go to Walmart. I'm like, oh. It's, oh. So it's kind of a yeah. it's cosplay then, right? I mean, yeah. Walmart, there are people out there doing it. They're too uh, busy doing their Chesterton reenactments. Well, I, uh, yeah, let's let's read the fourth chapter of of the Hobbit one more time. Let's. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but but it's interesting. You know, the thing is, you know, in fact, I just did this last week. I last was it? Yeah, last Friday, I gave a lecture at the Detroit branch of the Theosophical Society on biodynamic farming. And people were pretty excited. In fact, people have been contacting me all week about it because they didn't know that you could have a, 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 an agricultural method that was connected to the cosmos. Really? Right? They didn't know about it? No, Gosh. they didn't. Well, they, they had heard about it, but didn't really know how it actually worked. Yeah. So, which was nice. In fact, this, this morning... I got up with with the sun and before I came and I had to take a shower because I when it's this time of the year, I I even if I take a shower, I don't have time to shave. I had to get out and plant something. But I figured Allison Milbank's on today. I'm I'm gonna shave for Allison. You look good. You look good. <laughs> Very honored. Yeah. Allison thanks you. You know, yes. <laughs> but I was I was planting onions this morning when I got up and Allison uh, says your breath stinks like onions. <laughs> Yeah, it's that would be mean, a good thing. Okay, so what? Yeah, I, I, I can smell. I, I've smelled worse. <laughs> but I, but but this idea that I mean, and I think this is and Guido himself is actually uses a biodynamic farm as a, as an economic model, right? Because just like we're saying with Robert Herrick and the parish, that's the economic model, right? And and because that economic model is is simultaneously mindful of the creation and the creator. Mm -hmm. And without that, there's there it won't 
it, with or without that, this is well, look out the window. What, what that's what you get, right? What we see in the media and in the world, that's what you get from from a uh, a worldview disconnected from those two realities. What what kinds of hope are you seeing, Allison? Oh, okay. Just disconnect them from both, not just from yeah. one of those realities, from both. Yeah. And I think it connects you, Allison. What you're you understood, Michael, when he was talking about biodynamic farming. What signs of hope are you and John seeing? You know, so that you're seeing your interest in the parish is so poetic. It's, it's spot on. It's also practical. Um, do you see it as just a losing battle now, or um, you know, are you seeing any kind of uh, strong thrusts towards restoration, regeneration? I do, when I go around parishes, see that if you have a priest of imagination and past, a pastoral heart, you can grow the church. I have seen examples. Um, I do get great heart from the Save the Parish movement itself, which is a lay movement. There are few, you know, okay, it's got a priest, Marcus Walker, at its head, and Angela Tilby um, is another priest who's involved, but there are hardly any priests involved. They're all too scared. Um, but the Price, ladies really inspire me because they're the people yeah. on the ground who are actually keeping the show on the road, who are visiting the sick, you're kind of running services, running parishes sometimes, like yourself. Um, and they give me hope because they are at the bottom and they believe in what they're doing. And that does give me hope. Are you seeing young um, people in that movement too? Is it appealing to younger demographics? Is it? It, it, it does in the world of the post-liberal. Okay. Because of my son's generation, he thinks that there are 20% of young people who are not happy with the world as we have it, both mm -hmm. in terms of um, sort of social politics, economic politics, who are hungering for mystery. And I mean, you're seeing it in people like Mary Harrington, who are finding their way back to faith, people like Paul Kingsnorth. There are people who are finding their way back to a world of mystery and depth, um and are questioning the way things are um they tell me that the orthodox church is getting in england is getting large numbers of converts though i fear some of them may be from anglicanism because we are kind of abandoning uh a whole dna if you like for no good reason and yet does still attract people. And when you do put on very traditional rituals like the coronation, like the queen's funeral, you do find people who are suddenly aware that there is a completely different world of the symbolic, which I feel is a world that we are fast losing, not just religious symbolism, but in a sense, if you lose a religious, you almost lose any sense that things can mean anything, that you can have symbols, yeah. uh, you know, physical things that speak. And I, suppose I have a sense that the whole loss of the symbolic does hang on the mm -hmm. feminine. I almost think mm -hmm. if, if for me in any writing I would do, like 
if I was describing these people at that philosophy club lecture who just couldn't get it, I would, I, I found myself when I'm trying to say like what they don't get that I would say, especially on uh, the whole issue of love and dating, I'd say like those people who don't know that um, a woman is more than just a woman, you know, or that bread is more than bread. But the first one that comes to mind, if I had to go through a litany would be those two things. A woman is more than woman, bread is more than bread. And, um, you know, that's again, kind of, we can hang our hat maybe and just, if we stay on those those hugely symbolic types, then maybe the symbolic order can come back. But you're right. I mean, it's fading so fast, Allison. And I think I, you're, I, it's absolutely right, Mike, about the feminine. I mean, until that's restored, I mean, that, that's why when the original subtitle for the submerged reality was something like ecology, economics, and ecumenism or something like that. Because I thought, as I wrote, and I still think that um the way forward <laughs> is, is to restore sanity and is is for sophia to come out of exile mm. so, well i'm about to do a quiet it's supposedly a quiet day tomorrow it would be, be quite noisy um on julian of norwich and the motherhood of god but i'm going to talk about sophia and the whole um, tradition of holy wisdom from the Old Testament onwards. There'll be the full Margaret Barker will get in there. <laughs> oh, wow, great. Not to mention some Bulgakov, as well as ideas of seeing Christ as a mother figure in Julian. And um, and it it's 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 oversubscribed this day. Wow. And I do think people need to reclaim the divine feminine because they, they need to have some sense of themselves as symbolic creatures that we mean more than we are and that has to begin from our physicality and all its different aspects yeah. one of which is obviously our sex and gender mm -hmm. um and and to be able to have some kind of account of that i i don't see how you can kind of live without it yeah Another another shorthand I use that brings in the divine feminine I got from my novelist friend Stephen Bisenchi, who said, uh, those people who confuse a woman's glance with saying she has 20-20 vision, right? You know, so that brings in kind of intersubjectivity. Like when a woman gives you a glance, there's a lot of meaning behind that. You know, but we, we're, we're, at least on campus, we're kind of creating these kind of aut automaton men who would say like, Ellison, she's made up of this much nitrogen, this much oxygen, you know, and they're, they're and it, like any woman is going to be so turned off by that glance, you know, and of the, or the male gaze, the kind of uh, the dissecting gaze, you know, but this notion that um, we're, we're creating a whole group of men who don't know when they're in the doghouse from their wife because they treated her discourteously, you know, she, she gives you the glance. They could only describe the glance of a woman by saying like she she has her prescriptions on her glasses uh, or such and such, you know, but tying a lot of these, uh, the left, right brain, left brain in McGilchrist, um, the technocratic world versus the poetic mm -hmm. world. Uh, we need all these kind of short, shorthand terms. Then they, for me, the things that come up in conversation are usually tied to the feminine in some way, you know. Well, we, we need rituals, though, because I, I think Lucy Rigore is right when, you know, we don't know what woman is, if we, we don't know what man is, if we don't know what woman is, that, that they are these kind of poles right. that kind of form each other. And if they are to be equal, 
then they have both have to have full symbolic presence. But in society, you need to have rituals and customs which manage that distance. Yeah, yeah. And we yeah, people yeah. have said, oh, well, you know, for somebody to open a door for you is a kind of patronizing thing. And therefore, mm -hmm. let's get away with it. And now we've got a kind of world in which rape is absolutely what well, it seems to be very, very prevalent indeed. It's all, and yeah. not something, and I'm not say, saying that just having customs will deal with it, but you need to find ways of giving respect and honor yes. to men and women. And we've kind of given up on that between old and young, you know, between, and, and again, this is to do with the symbolic. That mm -hmm. our actions need rituals if we are to find ways to be just right. and ethical. I, I don't know if you saw it, Mike. I, I wrote a Substack this week. I don't even remember the title. This is it's on the essentialism of men and women. Well, it is. It is. And in the there, you know, and, and you're talking about these symbols. And, and I and I think um, my experience. I love weddings, mm. and my my favorite moment in a wedding is at 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 the procession where everybody's seated and then the bride comes in and everybody stands. Mm. I mean, it's, that's so profoundly yeah. moving and profoundly meaningful, right? Yeah. And you talk about, and I think, you know, my father taught me to open a door for a lady, which is really a microcosmic picture of standing when the bride enters, right? Yep. And, I, and, and we live in a world where people are afraid to give the definition of woman or man. Mm. That's the strange thing about this is how did we get here? <laughs> yeah, and because the definition I think gets it inevitably gets into like DNA and so forth. But I think, you know, Allison was talking about how they're they're mutually constitutive, right? But um, yeah. another way, another way is gestures. You know that um, you were talking about Caitlin <laughs> Jenner. That if we, uh, the great John Cowper Powis, you know, and he has a book called uh, The Art of Happiness. But it's the greatest two chapters, like how can a man live with a woman and how can a woman live with a man? I think it's the greatest phenomenology of genders ever. But he and there's not to say none of us here are saying this wouldn't be found. But one gesture he uses of the feminine, which I know is true of my wife. And I see a bookshelf behind you, Allison. You know, my wife will be and I use with the college students. She'll be sitting. We're both sitting in the living room and all of a sudden she'll stand up and she'll go to the bookshelf or the mantle and she'll move like a little trinket, like one inch to the left. Yeah. Then she'll come back and sit down. And then she's just very, I don't know, she's really kind of happy. And so this idea that like women spin a cocoons around themselves, right? Men don't do it. We kind of, yeah. but these gestures of men and women, and I, I don't want to be heard as saying there's no man that would ever do it, but we could enter phenomenologically into Caitlyn Jenner's house and say like, I don't know, I'm going to bet, I'm going to bet at least $50,000. He never does it. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's gestures to the male and the female that we need to bring those back and to train people to look at these things because it's quite beautiful. You know, I just, I would never, I would never do it. And when my wife does, it, I say, that's really cool. It just has never occurred right. to me to stare at something for a long time while I'm reading to get up and move something one centimeter to the left and go back <laughs> and look so satisfied. Right? You reminded me of years and years ago when I first started as a Waldorf teacher. I went to a visit at my friend's house. His name was Mike. Everybody, I only know people named Mike. And uh, he was a bachelor. So he was about 30. I was probably 24. And I afterwards, I saw a woman we both knew. She said, I said, hey, I just was at Mike's house. And she said, 
And her name was Irene. She said, so you saw his house? I said, yeah. No pictures on the walls. I said, yeah, I know. You're right. There were no pictures. <laughs> He's not civilized. He needs a woman. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Look at, look at, again, look at the way bachelors live. They live Spartan. That's like, the way she said. There's one plate and plastic plates. They just live like that. Women would never, ever do that. And we need to like bring on awareness of this. There's a mental gesture too, that I think is interesting. It's only, uh, he'll say, think of, uh, your marriage to John, my marriage to Amy and Mike's marriage to Bonnie. He'll say there's a mental gesture that like men are afraid of the world. Julius Caesar went into the world wearing gauze because we use abstractions to keep, we use our ideas to kind of buffer us from the world. Women, he'll say, are kind of reality addicts. You know, and then he said, and then he said, what did he say next or did she say next? Anyhow, this kind of plays out too, that within a marriage, my wife, I have a conceited view of myself, I guess. And then my wife would defend that to the outside world you know, but then in that in the household of marriage, Bonnie could look at Mike and say, like, Michael, you're not all that and remind you and boom, she can cut you down. You've and been then, spying. Yeah. Yeah. And then the male gesture is when they are they're having these kind of dance and so forth. There's something about the male psyche that said, I could die right now. Not that like you're, you would get <laughs> murdered, but like we could just throw the whole thing away because women are intrinsically attracted to like life. Right. Ellison, um, you're a priest. You know as well as I do, I've been around so many dying people, that um, the, the husband dies and the women will live a lot longer. The, the wife dies. A lot of husbands can just say, they're just sitting there and they can check out and they die like two weeks later. It's, these are different things. The deathbed is very gendered and we need to get the message out. And we're not saying any of this is uh, without thousands of exceptions, but uh, this stuff is interesting when you tell people, you know. I, I, I think you're right. I think we have to be careful when we do this. We do. We, the, the, we, we do it in a way that isn't open to people saying, well, these traditional ways of thinking that there is a way women inhabit the world, there's a male phenomenology, aren't culturally specific because there is an element of cultural specificity mm -hmm, for sure but you can't well of course people are trying to get away from the tie between motherhood giving birth for example um which i i i think is I, i'm not keen on let's put it that way yeah well, um, you know, you know, that there are things that do come from the fact that that our bodies inhabit the world right differently and I think that there is a, a goodness in acknowledging that I do inhabit a room differently from the phenomenology in which my husband is the room the the key is to keep those dynamic and not one is putting down the other because hundred percent I was doing I was teaching Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice to some students in a virtue ethic module um, and I'm wanting to show that Aristotle's idea of human flourishing is by Jane Austen seen uh, in terms of a marriage. That she sees this as a joint mode of human flourishing in a very companionate way. I could not get them to see this, even though the whole novel works towards yeah. the two characters have to get in ethical terms to a point where they're capable of this kind of complementary human flourishing. And it is in fact um, shown by the way that the garden is described and the way that they both inhabit the garden in slightly different ways. 
but my students will not accept this. Yeah. And they see yeah, for that, that anthropology of competitive individualism enters the house. Yeah. You know, the household. Yeah. That's right. They will not accept it. And yet I think that they are losing a huge amount by not doing so. So I think when we do articulate it, we have to articulate it in a way that is capable of a feminist reading in the sense of a good feminist reading, which absolutely honors the feminine and yeah. sees it as equal to the masculine. Um, so though I do agree with you about all this, I, yeah, I yeah. just have to be a bit careful. Um, <laughs> I was very, very sad that these students could not accept that marriage could be this wonderful cosmic thing, which I do believe it is. And I think we stand up as the bride comes in to right. acknowledge the holiness of the earth, mar marrying the sky, if you like, or the moon and the sun. But, you know, they'd even say, oh, sun, moon, no. By I wonder if we can appeal to their laziness. You know, cycles, women. You know they go by the moon. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I always tell, tell my own kids, so look at kids. The Bible starts with a wedding and ends with one. Yeah. And it's important. I, I try to I try to appeal to young people when they look at, and you tell me if you disagree, Allison, like one way to maybe help them see that is appealing to their laziness. And it's what uh, Ivan Illich calls the rests of gender, R-E-S-T-S, -S. you know, that in these you know, simple anthropologically, he goes to these Swiss Alpine villages and says that they, it was kind of an asymmetrical toolbox and it shifted from valley to valley. But in one valley, the men might milk the goats, but never the cows and so forth. And what he called um, that was that in my household, my wife is never going to fire up the barbecue this year, but I'm never going to make a casserole. And so it doesn't, she doesn't make all the food, but there's a whole half of the world in our household that I don't have to worry about. Then it comes to the nitty gritty, like when the kid is hungry and feeding and so forth. You know, uh, my wife was the go-to person, but she could, she could ask me to do anything, you know, in that world, but she was still the mistress of that world. And I would say yeah. yes. But one time she has a great, everybody comes over to our house, uh, she always is telling the story that we have a vacuum cleaner. It was a new Dyson like five years ago. And maybe a year ago, she asked me to vacuum before some friends were coming over and she was all harried and she was doing these things. And she caught me there and I was looking at it and I said, now, how do you fire this bad boy up? And she couldn't believe it. You know, and then uh, so she gets to tell everybody they laugh at me. Apparently I do nothing. But then when push comes to shove, I would say like, you would have no idea how to fire up the lawnmower or anything. But the, the larger poetry is, can we appeal to some people to say there's this way you could live with your spouse? It's not telling you which tools you can use, not in the longest way, but there's a way there's this dance of gender that you know that there's a lot of things that aren't your responsibility. It's wonderful. And it gives your wife, your, your partner, a sense of otherness, that there's this world that you find intriguing and so forth. You know, appealing to a sense of wonder, appealing sometimes basely to a sense of laziness that we, when we lived in a small apartment, we said, honestly, I'm not exaggerating at all. So many of the arguments around us were, I did the last load of laundry, it's your turn. I emptied the dishwasher last time, it's your turn. And I do think there's something to this that we can create this mutual complementarity. Don't know. Yeah, yeah we, we each need our own mysteries. We do, we do. Um, for which we're responsible. Actually, a character who's always criticized as being highly 
conservative, but I don't think it's as conservative as he sounds, is John Ruskin, who of course wrote of Queen's Gardens and King's Treasuries. And his writing on femininity is about the link between woman and bread offerer and to do with administration. Now, whether, as you say, these could be very different, these very. areas history we don't need to say because you're female you've got to be good at this or you've got to be good at that but there are these areas and if you if you do own them you're right it makes life much more relaxing and you boss the other person around in your area of mystery because in fact Irigaray goes back in her ethics of sexual difference goes back to the origin isn't it Aristotle who says that everything originates um, in wonder yes um, and and in fact we need to recapture there will be inequality in wonder. And I'm sorry to bring Tolkien in after you've been rude about the distributors. <laughs> and I accept everything you say about them. Yeah, I love Tolkien. It's, Tom it's... Bombadil and Goldberry represent in a world in which, in the world of Lord of the Rings, marriage is not possible. Relationships between men and female, they've all become kind of separated. You know, the... the um, the, uh, what are the tree creatures called? The Ents will never find the yeah. Ent wives. There is a kind of tragic world, but there is this paradisal world of a kind of complementarity, but equality um, between Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. And it right. seems to consist in poetry. He speaks only in poetry and gift, mutual gift giving. And yeah. in a kind of enchanted wonder between the two of them, it's very interesting to read. It's also very interesting that Tom Bombadil and Cloudberry did not make it into the movie. No, Isn't they that... didn't even make it into the BBC Radio 4 adaptation. Really? Huh. I think so. Talk about cultural analysis. <laughs> what? That's important. But anyway, uh, I don't want to take any more of your time, Allison. This has been such a wonderful conversation. It was delightful. Totally delightful Thank and insightful. So Holy cow. You can yeah. still every, I mean... Speaking to you is always a blessing, and this really is. I mean, I feel feel my soul has been nourished, and I've been lucky yeah. to be drawn into seriously, the, the seriously, group. absolutely. Yeah, I've we hope to talk to you again. I'm going to go away and look up Elix resting. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, it's in it's in a uh, it's in his book Gender. He calls it the rests of gender. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. Thank you so much, Alison Milbank, and thanks Thank everybody you. for listening to the. Regeneration podcast. Maybe next week, Mike, we're going to be doing something of an anniversary show. And I might see some people. If we do, even in the comments to this one, if you want us to answer any questions or if you want to propose um, you know, some topics that we should discuss, then maybe we can bring those up. So it's the first time we've yeah. done that. But uh, you know, send us your emails or in the comments um, about things you'd like to see or questions we could answer. And again, thank you so much, Allison, for your wonderful time today. And thanks for listening uh, to the Regeneration podcast.